Thank you, Jonathan. Now I've got something to fuss at Doyle Malden about. He didn't get back with me, and uh, I appreciate those who just handed me a note and got word to me. The visitation for Linda's mom is actually this afternoon at 1, and the funeral at 2 at Roberta Baptist. So a couple of you, I know, wanting a, uh, you have a meeting with Pastor Seeger and myself at 3. We'll need to do other plans there. Uh, but anyway, uh, continue to remember Linda Malden and uh, her, her, uh, her family. So just continue to pray for their comfort during this time. You know, I was thinking the other day, about if anything the church needs right now and Christianity needs right now. We need some joy. Amen? Amen. We need some joy and some contentment in life because folks judge things by circumstances around them. And, uh, you know, if they're on a mountaintop, they're happy. If they're in a valley, they're not. But Christian joy is to transcend all of that. Uh, because we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so that makes all the difference in the world. And so I want to bring a message to you this morning, uh, joy in a believer's life. And uh, I want us to look at some passages in Philippians. I don't know that we'll go verse by verse through the whole book. Recently we've covered a message out of chapter 2. I won't repeat uh, that passage but uh, I want to talk to us in a series about possessing true joy and contentment. Possessing true joy and con contentment. And I want us to remember that the book of Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, obviously. He was stirred by their steadfast support of him even when others had turned away. And so it's a letter written to dear friends in the faith. The congregation at Philippi was a congregation of special joy to the apostles' heart. And so he writes a letter to them. I'm sure that you love to get letters from friends. Amen? Especially handwritten letters or notes in this day of emails and Twitter messages and Facebook messages. It's so good to go to the mailbox from time to time and open up a card or a letter and there's such a sweet and a kind and encouraging handwritten note inside. Makes me think of some letters that pastors get from time to time. One little girl wrote her pastor and said, Dear Pastor, I loved your sermon Sunday, especially when it was over. <laughs> Another little girl wrote to her pastor and said, Pastor, would you pray for my school teacher? She's very sick. And she needs our prayers. Now, my classmates didn't want me to write you this letter <laughs> to pray for her. But we love getting letters of encouragement. Well, Philippians is a letter from the Apostle Paul written to a congregation that he started and that was near and dear to his heart. Now, as you know, when he left Philippi, the first 
a place that he landed down in Europe. He continued to go about on that missionary journey, the second missionary journey. Then he made a journey after that, of course, but he continued planning congregations. Jewish authorities would become enraged over Paul, who was once a prominent rabbi among them, and now he's preaching Jesus. And so they would follow him everywhere he went, and they would stir up mobs against him. Charges were brought against him for preaching the good news of Christ. You know, one, one, one has to honestly wonder if we're not headed at it that way again today in modern history. Opposition to those who preach the good news of Christ. Paul was not only a, a Jew, not only a Christian, but he was also a Roman citizen. Every Roman citizen had the right to appeal their case to Caesar and go to Rome for a trial. We know that Paul exercised that right and he was sent to Rome. Not under the circumstances he would have initially expected, but he was sent to Rome as a prisoner. When he arrived, he was placed under house arrest. He was chained to Roman soldiers where for two years he could receive visitors, but other than that, he had to wait for his trial. Now, during that period of waiting, he wrote some of the captivity letters, Philippians being one of those. Now, listen to what Dr. James Montgomery Boyce once said about this letter. He said, and I quote here, any Christian who is feeling down or discouraged about anything should study Paul's great letter to the Philippians. This is true because of Paul's circumstances when he wrote it. He'd been kept in prison for two years in Caesarea without trial and was being held for an unknown amount of time in Caesar's jail in Rome. He had survived a perilous storm on the Mediterranean Sea. He had been deserted by most of his friends. Others, even Christian leaders, had spoken against him, hoping to get him into even more trouble with the government. He was facing possible execution for his faith. Terrible circumstances. And yet, Boyce goes on to say, yet no book in the Bible is so filled with joy as the book of Philippians. Boyce continues pointing out that it's, it's not simply a book written to those who are needing comfort or joy. It's, it's a book with such a great wealth of various themes. There's only 104 verses in the whole entire book, but in those verses, most of the major doctrines of the Christian faith are at least uncovered, even though Philippians is not recognized as a doctrinal book of the same level as Romans or Ephesians. Philippians is so simple and yet so profound. It speaks to Christians regardless of their maturity in the Christian faith. Now Luke tells us in the book of Acts that when the Apostle Paul arrived in Rome as a prisoner, many of the Christians went out to meet him. They were welcoming him to the city even though he, he came in, in bonds as a prisoner. 
Paul went to prison, two years passed, maybe even more. Some of the Christian leaders were jealous of Paul and neglected him for that reason. In time, many of the Christians forgot about him and neglected him. The proof of that lies in the fact that when Onesiphorus, a visitor to Rome, tried to find Paul some years later, nobody could even tell him where Paul was. He had to make a diligent search before he could even find him. So Paul's lonely to a degree. And yet again, I want to emphasize, he had such joy Folks, why is it that even in the affluent West today, so many people do not have joy and contentment? What was Paul's secret? Well, let's look at that today. First of all, I want you to note with me, joy comes from being a servant of Jesus Christ. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You know, Christians have a counter-cultural view of joy. Folks, we aren't against pleasure and satisfaction. We simply don't rely on the world or the things of the world to give us pleasure and satisfaction. Listen to an ancient letter from Syrian to his friend Donatus in the 3rd century. He says, This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed such, uh, uh, some great mountain and looked out over the, wise, uh, the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Thieves on the high road, pirates on the seas. And in amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds. Under all roofs, I would see misery and selfishness. It is a really bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet, in the midst of it all, I have found a quiet and a holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them now. Folks, that's where contentment and joy comes from, from Jesus and from being a servant of Jesus. Again, just consider Paul. He's in prison, and yet, despite that, Paul is probably the most joyful man in all of Rome. Right off, Paul links his joy to the fact that he, along with Timothy, they are servants of Christ. And in fact, of all the words Paul uses for servant, he used one that to the common man on the street would have even been an insult, the lowest form of a servant, a doulos. It refers to a slave, even a bond slave. Somebody who is a slave of someone and his bonds could only be released by death. And Paul says, I am a doulos of Jesus Christ. I believe that's the first important key that we see to joy and contentment in Paul's letter. 
You know, so many Christians today want a Christianity where they are in charge. But Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you must do what? You must lose it. He said, the one who lives to save his life will lose it. The one who loses his life for my sake will save it. That's one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. The reason a lot of folks are miserable running around today, even some Christians, is because they're wanting to call all of the shots in their life instead of living a life in total surrender and submission to Jesus Christ. Paul was a bond slave and he was filled with joy. Christ was in charge of his life. He knew that Christ is none other than sovereign God and and. As such, he knows everything about the Apostle Paul, and Paul knew that his life was in the palm of the Lord, the hand of the Lord. And being in that situation, he didn't fear anything. Folks, that's the joy of being a Christian, being a servant of the Lord. Amen? You know that your life is in the hands of a sovereign God. And what did Jesus say about his children, he says, God even knows the very hairs on your head. He knows everything about us. And he's promised whatever our circumstances are in life, whatever our hardships are in life, whatever our trials and tribulations and valleys are in life, he's right there with us and he's not only with us in the valley, but he's got a plan in the midst of it all. That's where joy and contentment comes from. Paul knew that Christ could be relied on for everything that he needed. In chapter 4, he's going to say, My God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul had been able to testify of that provision in his own life, God's provision in his own life, and he knew right into the Philippians that God would do for them what God had done for him. Jesus Christ modeled servanthood. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians 2, 5 we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He modeled servanthood. Not only did he model it, he commended it. He admonished us to be servants. In Mark chapter 9, verse 35, he said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. He said that service is the road to greatness in God's view. Maybe that's another reason more don't have joy and contentment in their Christian life. They're still trying to be too much in control rather than being a servant of Christ and losing their lives in service to Him. Put Him first. Seek Him first. 
and just see the change that he makes in your mindset and in my mindset. Well, the second key, joy comes from being a saint in God's family. In verse 1, he goes on to say, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, if you try to find joy in the things of the world, joy will always escape you. Even if you obtain what you seek after, you'll be like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, who obtained more than any of his contemporaries. He accomplished more and possessed more than any of his contemporaries. And yet, what did Solomon end up saying? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Folks, the Bible makes clear that joy and contentment comes through a relationship to God through Christ. Through Christ, sinners become saints. Now, we don't use that word very complimentary today, do we? We say something like, there, there goes John Brown. He thinks he is such a saint. We use the word in a negative connotation like that. But the fact of the matter is, if you've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, you are a saint in one sense of the word. We may not always act like saints in practice, but positionally we are saints. And the word refers to something that has been set aside, set apart, and cleansed for God's use and God's glory. It was used... For example, of the Old Testament utensils and materials in the temple. They were sanctified. They were set aside for God's purposes. You did not take those vessels from the temple home and feed your livestock out of those. They were set apart for God's use. When the Bible speaks of us being saints, it refers to ordinary people who have had something extraordinary happen in them. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and now we have been made alive in Christ. We may not always act like a new people, but in reality, we are a new people. Simon Peter says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's who we are in Christ. And Peter goes on to give the practical outgrowth of that. As a holy people, he says, we are to show forth the praises of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter says we are to be holy because God is holy. How does one become a saint? Again, the Bible makes it so clear. The Holy Spirit brings about conviction of sin in your life in need of a Savior. And He accomplishes regeneration in your life and in my life. As Jesus said in John, no one comes to me unless my Father's Spirit draws him. Then as Peter said on the day of Pentecost, when the people were convicted... They said, what must we do to be saved? Peter told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They were to call upon Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. My point is, we don't make ourselves saints. God does that, drawing us to Christ. God regenerates us. Positionally, 
We become saints because of His work. Again, then practically, we're to go on and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and be practically in our everyday life what God has already made us positionally. Titus chapter 3, Paul says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You become a saint when you're saved. At Philippi, they were saints. Just read back to Acts chapter 16 when Paul landed down at Philippi and you'll understand how the gospel started there. It's not church membership that saves you. There wasn't even a church at Philippi yet. In fact, there wasn't even a Jewish synagogue Oftentimes, early Christians went to Jewish synagogues until they began assembling in their own places. They didn't even have a, a synagogue to go to. Paul had to go down by the river to find a group there. So it's not church membership that saves you, it's Jesus. You're adopted into God's family through Jesus. And folks, that's where joy and contentment comes from. Remember when Jesus sent out the 70 in Luke chapter 10 and they came back and they were tickled to death and they were rejoicing because they said, Lord, even the demons were subject to us. What did Jesus go on to say? He said, don't rejoice because the demons were subject to you. Rather, rejoice because your names are written in God's book of life. Do you have that assurance? Do you know that you know that you know that you've been born again and made a saint in God's family? If you don't have that assurance, you can search for joy and contentment to your dying day in this world, and you will never be satisfied. Thirdly, joy comes from being a partner in the gospel. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. What are you grateful for in your life? What are you thankful for in your life? William Barclay, a, a gifted British scholar, wrote in his autobiography that he was thankful that being such as he was, he had the friends that he had. Helen Keller thanked God for her handicaps, saying that it was through her handicaps that she found the Lord and he made her work clear to her. Paul was a thankful Christian too. He wasn't so much thankful for earthly circumstances necessarily, although he was content whatever those happened to be, but he was grateful for the people that he had met there who had joined hand in hand with him for the sake of the gospel. 
I want you to think with me for a moment about the people at Philippi for a moment because when you think about their identity, it's not a group that would just be naturally bound together. The church at Philippi was made up by a businesswoman who traded in purple cloth from Asia and had been a Jewish proselyte. Then there was a little slave girl who had been delivered of an evil spirit. And then there was the Philippian jailer. Folks, those were the very first converts in the church there at Philippi. By human standards, if you put those three individuals and others like them together there at Philippi, you would hardly have what you would normally think of as a family of friends. But they all had the common experience of the saving grace of Christ. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed wherever you go in the world, some of our mission teams have have commented on this, wherever we go in the world and whoever we meet, it doesn't care their nationality, it doesn't matter their nationality, it doesn't matter the color of their skin, it doesn't matter their uh, gender, it doesn't matter their language, When we meet Christians all over the world, fellow Christians, there is a family bond. You can be among people you don't even know. You've just known them for a day or two. And instantly, there's that common bond. We're partners together in the gospel. There's a spiritual camaraderie, a sense of family. We can be very different on the outside, and yet God's brought us together. In fact, some of our differences can even make our ministry go further and wider. Folks, that's one of the things about Christianity. There's this partnership. A partnership in the Lord. We share a common Savior. We're united by the same Spirit. We've been given the same commission. And we have a common hope of glory. The word here refers to sharing in something, participating in something greater than the people involved. And more lasting than the moment at hand. And that's what Paul is thankful for here. They have shared in the gospel together. They were united not by a mere social level, but by their commitment to Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. And they share in the outcome of the gospel. They are not only working to have a part in the church at Philippi, but they are sending financial gifts to the Apostle Paul so that he might be supported and continue in the spread of the gospel around the globe. They are working together with one another there at Philippi and with Paul in his missionary activities to get churches planted all over the globe so that men and women and boys and girls can hear about Jesus. Folks, that's why churches are so important. God has not called us to be lone rangers. 
That, that is why that even though you might could go to the lake or the mountains and worship as you enjoy God's creation, what you cannot have by yourself there is this partnership aspect of the gospel. In the church, there's a partnership in the gospel. We meet together, we pray together, we minister to one another together, and we worship God corporately. It's called the church. To carry out these functions, you've got to be in fellowship with other believers. In the partnership of the gospel, we have different members of the body of Christ. As I alluded to a moment ago, everyone is different in the body of Christ. A different gift. God's designed it that way on purpose. You, you have a body coming together, a church family coming together, those who have common faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit possessing us. And the Lord puts us together. All of our differences, He puts us together. What one can do, another can't. But that again, that's the beauty that strengthens our work and our witness together. None of us are to be long rangers. That's one thing that people have commented to me about over the past four months. The loneliness that they feel. The Philippians had stood with Paul when no one else had. To Paul, their friendships, their gifts were more than meet the eye. They were participating in a mission bigger than themselves. Folks, maybe you're lacking that kind of joy in your Christian life. The joy of a partnership with others. That's why I've said before, unless providentially hindered, you need to be in church on the Lord's day. Now folks, I'm not addressing this virus issue right now. Some folks that are particularly vulnerable, they're waiting right now. And we understand that. I'm not talking about that. I'm addressing the bigger picture, the general picture in your life. Whether five years from now, ten years from now, fifteen years from now. We're to be a member of a church family. We have a partnership in the gospel together. It's, it's very important. Not only a church family, but you ought to have a community group. You should have a place of service in the body of Christ. We give collectively in the offering, not just for the needs of our own church body, but missions around the world. If you were to look at the single biggest line item in our budget when it comes to missions, it would be the cooperative program where we have linked up with 50,000 other Southern Baptist churches to get God's work done around the world. That is a partnership that we have together with other congregations. All of these are ways that we are partners together. And if you're not a part of that, or if you know a professing Christian who is not a part of something like this, they're missing something very profound and meaningful in their lives. What makes the fellowship and partnership of Christians even more powerful is just because we, just, just like we have a commonality in the gospel, the very principles of the gospel also help us to deal with something else that we will always need to be mindful of 
when we talk about community living in a fallen world. What do you have to address when you talk about community living in a fallen world? What will there always be from time to time? Conflict. That's why I've encouraged you to be very careful with debates and arguments you have on social media. The gospel is at stake in that regard. Christians have always disagreed over non-essentials with other Christians. But the same gospel principles of confession, reconciliation, repentance, forgiveness, and new beginnings, the same thing that God does in our lives when we're saved happens in another sense on the horizontal level between believers. Unbelievers don't have that foundation, folks. But we do. That's why it's such a serious denial of the gospel sometime, from time to time when I've heard Christians tell me, I will never forgive so-and-so or reconcile with so-and-so in my family. I will never forgive them. I will never reconcile with them. I will never reconcile with Brother Joe at work or whoever it is. Or when a marriage breaks up and, and one or both sides absolutely refuse to reconcile or forgive, they are essentially denying aspects of the gospel that saved them. You understand what I'm saying? Confession, reconciliation, repentance, forgiveness, new beginnings. What God does in our lives on the vertical, those same principles apply in how we deal with one another, with all of our shortcomings. Folks, where Christians meet together, we are to be a picture of the gospel to a lost world in our relations with one another, our partnership together as a body of believers, even when there's disagreement, even when there's conflict. We put these gospel principles that I just mentioned into practice, and the world sees that. And what do they know? They know there is a power greater than us at work in us and through us. The gospel enriches our own lives. It helps us to do God's work together. It helps us to glorify God. It helps us be involved in missions. And it even helps us deal with difficulties in human relationships. It impacts all of those areas. And when we see those principles of the gospel at work in us, in our partnership together, there's joy, there's contentment, there's satisfaction in all of that. Because again, we know that this is not of us, but it's of the Lord. Maybe you're one of those today who's suffering from what some call busy loneliness. You do a lot of stuff, you have a lot of responsibility, you're always tied up with something, and yet you're very, very lonely. It doesn't have to continue that way. Get involved here with others in a partnership. Again, that's what Paul is addressing 
in verses 3, 4, and 5. And it brought such joy to his heart knowing that the Philippians were in this partnership with him. One last thing and we're done. Joy comes from Christian anticipation. Kevin emphasized it a moment ago and I'm so glad he did. Look at verse 6. Paul says, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Paul expresses a confident joy over the Philippians in knowing that God completes what he begins. God finishes what he starts. Folks, how many times have we started something and not finished it? Men, maybe I'm talking to you, you started a project around the house but didn't get it done. You say, oh, that's never happened to me. Well, I want to talk to your wife. I think she'd probably say differently. We don't always finish what we start, but guess what? God does. Think back in, even in the Old Testament with me for a moment. Even after he led the children of Israel down into Egypt for 400 years, he left them there for a time being. Why? Because the sin of the Amorite in Canaan was not yet complete. He was giving them time to repent. They didn't. God has a long view of things. We want everything done by tomorrow, but God's eternal. Salvation's his work. He begins it. He continues it. He finishes it. If you're saved again, it's because of God. You didn't draw up salvation's plan. The Bible says, in fact, that Christ was crucified from the very foundation of the world. It wasn't some quick plan or afterthought on God's part. If you've come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it wasn't simply because you woke up one day and just arbitrarily said, you know what, I think I need to be saved today. No, it was God's work in you, drawing you. And he continues that work. And the Bible says one day he will finish that work when he calls you home to glory and you stand before him. And even then it's not over. You'll have all of eternity in heaven to continue to see God's glorious work. None of us become a part of the body of Christ to be thrown by the wayside. Again, back to that illustration I gave a moment ago about the, the Israelites in Egypt, how God brought them out. God continued to work in them. They rebelled against Him, and God sent them away into exile. Everybody would have said, okay, it's over. God's done with them after 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. But what had God said? The exile would be what? 70 years. And through Jeremiah, what, what had God told him in Jeremiah 29? I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not for evil. Plans to prosper you and to give you a hope. God wasn't done with them yet. God continued to work in them. And through the Jewish line, who showed up? The Messiah. God's plan from the beginning. And then because of Jesus Christ, one day we will all be around the throne, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, praising God for what He's done for us in Christ. God finishes what He starts.
you might be discouraged where you, where you perceive that you might be in your life right now, in your Christian walk. What's God doing in and through what you're experiencing right now to conform you more to the image of Christ? He doesn't use just good stuff to do that. He uses trial and tribulation. Even that is His work in us, growing us, sanctifying us, becoming more like Christ, becoming the people in a lost world He wants us to be. He uses all of these things in our lives. He's working His work. He's always working, as Jesus said in John chapter 5. My Father is working even unto now, and I am working. He's working His work in you, regardless of where you are and what you're experiencing. And you know what? He will finish His work in you. And that ought to bring a joy and a contentment to your heart that nothing else in the world can. To know that the sovereign God of the universe is at work in you. Would you bow with me, please? I want to ask you, do you have joy and contentment in your life? Well, do you know that you've been born again? If you've not been, thank God that you're not satisfied. God's using that as a wake-up call to come to Christ. Believe upon Christ. You say, Pastor, I've already experienced the new birth. Wonderful. Surrender everything over to Him that's in your life. Put it all under the Lordship of Christ. Lord, I want to be your bondservant. I don't want to call the shots. Are you involved in corporate life, partnership with other believers, or are you trying to be a lone ranger? Are you discouraged over your circumstances? Take heart. God's using those. Father, I want to thank you today for the joy and contentment that only you can bring to our lives. Lord, help us as believers to not be guilty of trying to revert back to things that we would look to before we were converted to bring us satisfaction. May every day of our lives, may we glory in you and surrender to you and follow you, even if it doesn't make sense to us at the moment, knowing that you are at work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please?